in your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 6. If you don't have one with you, there's probably a reddish colored one underneath a chair in front of you somewhere. I learned in the uh, 8 o'clock service that uh, I do not have enough time to bring this entire message. So once again, uh, to be continued, I'll tell you that in advance, we're going to continue on with this next week, and uh, whatever God is doing with this, I hope that it is uh, indeed addressing some of the needs that you have in your life. For those of you that are just joining us, uh, or maybe don't remember, we're talking about developing Christ-like character in our lives, becoming like Christ. And if you are a guest with us today, our Spanish language group is still in their worship time downstairs. We don't always keep that in sync exactly. We've been talking about developing Christ-like character in our lives. We started in Philippians chapter 3 with Paul's passionate desire. He said, I want to know Jesus Christ. That's my heart's desire. That's my passion I want to know Christ. And he said, I want to be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own, but that which is through faith, the righteousness of God which comes on the basis of faith. Paul said, I want my life to begin to reflect the character of Christ, whom I love and I I long for and I yearn to know. And so he described this as his passion in life, his number one all-supreme goal. Everything else was subordinate. And he said that. I've counted everything else as rubbish for the excellency of knowing and gaining Jesus Christ. That's, that's more important to me than anything else. And so we've been talking about how is, when we have this desire to know Jesus Christ and to be made over into his likeness, how does this happen in our lives? Last week we looked at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, because Paul gives us some real insight into the process of transformation in those verses. He says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. He says, give yourselves to God entirely. And then he says, and do not be conformed to the world. And here's the key. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so, Paul says the key to transformation, to becoming Christ-like instead of like the world, or like your old self, the key to transformation is in the renewing of our minds. Now, the power of transformation is in the Holy Spirit. I I want to make that clear, because we don't have any... It's not like, oh, I can learn something new. Give me a course. I'll take six classes, and I can be Christ-like. That's not the point. It's not that I'm going to learn it, and then I'm going to do it. I'm going to learn something new. And what I'm going to realize is the only one that can do it is Christ in me, By the power of the Holy Spirit. So, the key to transformation is the renewing of our minds. That is the process, but the power 
to make the difference, to actually do the behavior, to change the way we act and the way we live, that power is in the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul meant when he said, that I may be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own. See, if you could read it, learn it, and do it, it would be yours, wouldn't it? It would be your own effort. And a lot of people think that that's Christianity. Here's the, here's the Bible, I read the Bible, I learn it, I, I do it. Well, the problem is we all know we don't do that very well. <laughs> okay, so I read it, and I learn it, and I try to do it. And uh, I read it, and I learn it, and I fail a lot of times, whatever. But that's, that's all me. That's a works-oriented kind of religion. And what Paul is saying is, I want to know Jesus Christ, and I want Him to live through me. I want His power in my life. I want His dynamic in my life. I, I want His transformation. And yet, the key to that, where we're confronted with the need to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and rely on His power and rely on the presence of His Spirit is when we come face to face with our deficient and and inappropriate ways of thinking, the lies that we have believed, are confronted with the truth of the Word of God and we realize... All my life I thought this is what would make me happy. All my life I thought this was how to cope with problems. All my life I thought this was how to get people to do what I wanted. And now the Word of God is telling me something different. And there needs to be a change. This morning I want to move to Ephesians chapter 6 and talk about our warfare because we kind of left off there last week talking about How is it that all of this bad thinking, this wrong philosophy of life develops? What happens that makes our minds get so messed up? Uh, And we ended by quoting some of the verses from the Old Testament, like there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it is death. In other words, what's logical and reasonable to you is not always right. But it sure seems right. It seems like what I know best. But it takes me in a wrong direction. Where do those lies come from? Where do those ideas come from that are really counter to the teaching of Scripture and to the character of Christ? And we talked about how, uh, you know, we're, we're born with a sin nature. That's the big culprit. We also are born into a family with genetic heritage that has issues. We're born into a family. We have parents. We, we have an environment. We have siblings or something like that. Whatever it is, every child has an environment. Even if it's an orphanage, there's an environment. So you grow up in that environment. And you're exposed to, to the frailties and and foibles and failings of other human beings. You have all of that going on. We talked about family dynamics. And and one of the things that I mentioned last week that um, has sparked some interesting discussion is that sometimes families, without realizing what they're doing, and I'm not suggesting that that people go out and, and intelligently invite demonic spirits into their homes, but the truth is through bad behavior and through engagement in habitual sinful practices, oftentimes demonic spirits 
gain access to our homes and our families and our family history. And as a consequence of that, children are, are born into that environment where demonic spirits of certain uh, kind of flavors uh, affect the atmosphere. And so children come up in this whole, you know, quagmire of influence and genes and atmosphere and spiritual warfare and culture and all of these things shape our thinking. And the Bible says that that thinking needs to be confronted with the truth of the Word of God in order for our lives to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 6, beginning of verse 10, Paul writes, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God, that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies, or in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition, for all the saints. Now, there are a couple of things in this passage that I want us to see very clearly in order to understand the kind of struggle that we are engaged in in the process of being changed from our old self-centered, selfish ways into the image of Jesus Christ that is formed in us. This is the battle. And Paul says that this battle that we are facing is not against flesh and blood. Now, a lot of times people look at this passage that we just read in Ephesians, and they say, well, that applies to things like uh, evangelistic crusades, or, you know, some kind of spiritual campaign in the community, or... Uh, ministry, you know, outside in the community. That's, boy, we're fighting the powers of darkness there. Well, Paul's talking about everyday life. I mean, read the context. Go back into chapter 5 and move forward in the first part of chapter 6. What's he talking about? He's talking about being filled with the Spirit. He's talking about marriage. He's talking about children. He's talking about work. Not talking about having a crusade for evangelism. He's talking about everyday life. And living like children of the living God. Acting like children of God. At home. Uh, with our children. In the community. With our bosses. Or as the boss. Behaving like followers of Jesus Christ. This is the daily battle. And in that battle, he says, we are not fighting flesh and blood. People are not the problem. Now... They often look like they're the problem. 
And the reason they look that way is because we don't see the demonic spirits, but we see the people. And people give us grief. You know, and so we, we kind of have a tendency to think, well, that's where the trouble is. If it weren't for this crazy person at work, or if it wasn't my, for my Looney Tunes spouse, or if it wasn't for my kids, I would be a great Christian, you know, but I have all this trouble. And, and Paul is telling us, this is, the people are not the crux of the problem. Friends, the battle is for you to begin to reflect the character of Jesus Christ wherever you are and in whatever capacity you are in that place. And Paul says, in that process, our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realm. He's talking about personalities of the powers of darkness, demonic spirits that wage war against us. And the, and the place where that battle takes place is in the mind, principally in the mind. Because that's where the lies are given, the arguments are raised, the temptations are presented. You say, well, I saw something. That's what tempted me. Well, it tempted you because you saw it and you started thinking about it. You heard it and you started thinking about it. Or it was offered to you. You know, no one sins mindlessly. Are you with me? You know, you don't just mindlessly, without thought, do dumb things. There's, a, there's something that happens up here before you make the decision to go ahead with whatever it is. And Paul says that battle, whether it's to, to yield to some vice, whether it's to have a temper tantrum, whether it's to curse someone out, whether it's to abandon the relationship, or whatever it is, that battle is a battle that begins with the mind. And read these pieces of armor and you see that every one of them in some way or another relates to how we think. Paul was thinking about a Roman soldier when he named these items. And he was also thinking about the Old Testament because frankly most of them are quotations from the Old Testament in one place or another. But the picture he gives us here is kind of like a Roman soldier. And he says, here's the armor of God. Put on the girdle of truth, having girded your loins with truth. What's he talking about? Well, the imagery is of the soldier who has his belt on that keeps his uniform trim and tucked in, or the person who is working in the field, not a soldierly image, but a worker image with those longer garments that they wore, and they would gather them up and tie a, a, a belt or something around their waist and between their legs. And they would pull it up so that it would be out of their way and they, they could work more easily. If you think about the imagery that he's creating, you can understand that to gird up the loins of your mind with truth is to have the Word of God tie up the loose ends of your thinking. 
You see, there's a direct connect there. What is, how do you put on a girdle of truth? He's not talking about strapping the Bible on your waist. He's talking about a way of thinking <clears throat> that reflects your grounding in the Word of God. You remember what we looked at a few weeks ago in John's letter when he said, I'm writing to you young men because you're strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. They're strong because the Word of God abides in them. The foundation of truth is what enables us to take all these loose thoughts that we have and, and gather them up under the authority of the Word of God. And it is the foundation of Scripture that enables me to expose the lies of the devil. Because he does lie. He comes to every one of us just like he came to Eve. Has God really said? Raising the question. And behind the question is the implication. God's lying to you. And behind the implication is the suggestion that God is withholding from you. For He knows that in the day you eat of it, you will be like He is. <laughs> and He doesn't want any competition. So He's holding back from you because He... And, and the enemy comes at us that way. It is the truth of the Word of God that gives the foundation for that. And on He goes. He talks about the shield of faith. How do you use the shield of faith? Well, the shield of faith is your confidence in the truth of God. And when the lie comes whizzing in, you hold up the shield of faith to block it. I believe the truth. It stops the lie. And where does that happen? Up here. Or he talks about the breastplate of righteousness. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. What is that? Jesus Christ. That He has paid the price. That I am clean before God. That I am without guilt in the presence of the mighty God. That He has cleansed me by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I stand confidently with Him. You know how John says, if brothers of our hearts condemn us, <laughs> we have a hard time praying. When you're struggling with guilt and you're struggling with all of those issues and you're uncertain about your standing with God, it's hard to fight the battle. <clears throat> but when you know the truth, and you know you're cleansed, you know you're forgiven, and you know Christ has washed your sin away, and you know that you're standing in God's presence, pure and holy, with His imputed righteousness, clothed in His righteousness. Put that shield of faith up against the lies of the enemy that tell me otherwise. And I have confidence in God that that's true. Where does that take place? It's up here. Or the sword of the Spirit, which Paul says is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is how I use the Word of God offensively. The devil tells me this lie, and you bet, no, this is what God says. The enemy came to Jesus in the wilderness, and he said, turn the breads in the stone. And Jesus answered him, or turn the stones into bread, and Jesus answered him with a scripture. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. His answer was, it is written. You see, he thrust the sword of the truth right at the lie. 
It is written. This is the specific application of the Word of God to the particular lie that you're being fed. So the devil comes back at him with a scripture quote. Let me take you to the top of the temple, and Jesus, why don't you jump off, and, and uh, you'll land with safety because it is written. The devil uses the Bible. Does that surprise you? It shouldn't. He knows it probably better than you do. It is written. He will give his angels charge concerning you, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus, in essence, says, yeah, and you just misinterpreted that. It is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. That's the parry and the thrust of the truth of the Scripture. And I want you to see how all of the spiritual armor relates to the battle that goes on here for the truth. And ultimately it comes down to whether you and I are willing, by faith, to rest on the truth of the Word of God, or whether we're going to try to figure this stuff out on our own and sort through it rationally and, and uh, run around and get a bunch of opinions and take a poll and kind of make a decision based on what, what we can figure out. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it is death. And before I leave this subject and move into the kind of nitty-gritty of the application, I keep hearing it said, even though I've been saying differently for 26 years, and so I'm going to say it again this morning. I keep hearing people say that demons or the devil can't get into your mind and read your thoughts and talk to you. Yes, they can. They certainly can. Who do you think you're having a conversation with in this warfare if they, don't, if they can't read your thoughts? I mean, do you make a habit of talking out loud everything that goes through your brain? Do you, do you talk out loud about that? <clears throat> when you're being tempted, are you having a, a verbal conversation out loud? I don't think so, especially if you're in public. I don't think you're having any kind of verbal conversation, you know. It's going on in your head. And, and when you say, no, I don't think that's a good idea, who says? Oh, yeah, it is. Nobody will know. Who says that? You think that's your own mind? You think you're imagining this stuff? You're having a conversation with yourself? You think you're in a battle with your own brain? No. Listen, what goes on in your mind is a process in the presence of three people, at least three. One of them is you, hopefully. Hopefully you're present. One of them is you and your thoughts. And one of them is the Holy Spirit of God. Thank God if He's in your life, if you're a, if you're a born-again child of God, the Holy Spirit is living inside of you, He has access to your mind and your mental processes. And isn't it amazing how He can bring Scripture to bear at just the right moment? I'm amazed at at how oftentimes a a Scripture verse that I haven't even thought of in, in months pops into my brain at just the right moment. And I know how it got there. You know, I didn't think it up. The Holy Spirit of God 
brought it out of the recesses of my memory at just the moment of need. And when this battle is going on, it's because I'm fighting an enemy who is introducing thoughts and ideas to my brain. You know, if you will awaken to the fact that the spiritual warfare, the the principalities and powers and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realm, if you awaken to the fact that that battle is going on in your mind, it will give you a lot of insight. Don't own every thought you have. You know what I mean by that? Don't accept as your own every thought that goes through your mind. Recognize that many of them are planted there by an enemy. And there's nothing he would rather do than make you think you think them. Because then he can dump guilt on you. And if you love the Lord with all your heart, and and you're a child of God, and you want to honor Christ and, and to do the right thing, you know, and, and you're at the cash register and the person at the register hands you back a ten instead of a one and you get too much change and you hear a, a voice in your head say, why don't you just not say anything? They'll never know. Where do you think that comes from? That's not necessarily your thought. That comes from the enemy. And the counter to that is to honor the Lord. That's stealing. It is written, thou shalt not steal. Get out of here, Satan. In the name of Jesus. And you give the money back. And straighten out the change. Don't accept every thought that comes because they're not all yours. Recognize that the battle goes on in the mind. I'd like you to look at your outline for this morning. The battle belongs to the Lord. Roman numeral 1. As we grow up and as we kind of develop ways of thinking and acting and behaving. And then we come to Christ. That's where the conflict often begins. We are confronted with the truth of God's Word in opposition to the way that seems and has seemed all of our lives right to us. Mostly our wrong beliefs are oriented around what we think will make us happy and give us a sense of fulfillment. I mean, that starts in early childhood. And from childhood, children begin to develop along the lines of looking for pleasure and avoiding pain and finding out ways to get what they want and to avoid what they don't want. And, and they develop strategies. And anyone that's a parent 
knows that process. You know, they work on that. And, and, and the process, the point of parents is to help them grow up and become mature and responsible and learn things like delayed gratification and not always getting my way and thinking about others and sharing and, you know, the story, everything I needed to know I learned in kindergarten. And that whole process begins in our earliest years. And then as we begin to look at the kinds of things that we want to make us happy, our ideas extend to what will help us reach those goals or to soothe us when we fail. You know, and how many people begin to adopt strategies to pamper themselves after they've hit a wall in the pursuit of their goals and the kind of ways that people do that. And, and they're myriad. I mean, people have all kinds of ways of solving those kinds of issues. They retreat, they withdraw, they, they learn to get drunk or they, you know, they eat or they whatever. You know, they, they find ways. They go to a movie. They, and I'm not saying that any particular thing in moderation is necessarily negative, but it's the reason and the motivation, the excess that is often bought into as a means of kind of pampering myself because I didn't, I didn't get what I wanted. And then when trouble comes, we develop strategies to protect our ego at all costs. Listen. Outside of Jesus Christ, the goal of every person is to save their life. Are are you with me? You know what I mean by that? I want to preserve my ego intact at any price. I want to feel okay about myself. I want to see myself as being okay. You know, good, valuable. And we go about that any way that's necessary to protect ourselves and to promote ourselves. Uh, Adults, children do this openly. You can just see right through them, you know. As we get older... (laughs) Had some time with the grandkids yesterday... The older one did not get his way in a certain matter. And he was unhappy. And, uh, you know, I was trying to talk to him. I didn't know exactly what had gone on, but I was trying to talk to him. And he said, leave me alone. And I said, why? I don't feel good. Why don't you feel good? Leave me alone. (laughs) All right, this is kind of a cycle here. And Rowena says to me, he didn't get his way. Okay, so he's over on the sofa, and he wants to be left alone. And the next thing I know, the younger one is crying, because the older one did something to him. And immediately, I recognized what's going on. He's unhappy, he's not getting his way, so he's going to create a diversion by whatever he did to to Caleb pushed him over pushed him down or took a toy i don't know what happened so now he's wailing on the carpet you know and we got this drama going on 
And I thought, you know, adults act the same way. They just are more sophisticated. They learn more clever ways of doing the same kind of thing. Uh Uh-oh, all eyes are on me. I've messed up. Let's see, who can I shift the focus to? And we play these games and we adopt these methods. And from childhood on, you know, we're kind of playing this. And psychologists call that tactic a, um, what do they call it? Defense mechanism. Yes, I knew the word was there somewhere. They call it a defense mechanism. Now, I want to take a time out here for just a second. And I want to tell you about the science of psychology. Because this is it's important for us. I have... I've studied a lot of psychology, I've studied a lot of counseling and psychotherapy and all that kind of stuff, and um, here's what I've learned. Like a lot of scientists, they are pretty good at observation. In other words, people who study human behavior are pretty good at forming an analysis and categorizing that behavior. And if you look at, for example, when you talk about disorders, if you look at the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, clusters of behavior have been identified and isolated and given a name. And once you read the name and the things that make up that category, you can start to look at people in your environment and say, oh, that's that, or that's that, or this person has this thing over here, you start to make the same kind of categorization. And actually, those categories are not bad in and of themselves. Psychologists are pretty good at observation and classifying human behavior. The rub comes in that they really don't understand what causes it. They would like us to think they do, But the understanding of what causes it, quite honestly, is dependent on your worldview. If you happen to be an evolutionary biological thinker, and you believe that all of behavior is a product of chemistry, then you look for chemical causes. Uh, If you are a behaviorist and you think that all behavior is a product of stimuli in the environment, then you start looking for poverty in the ghetto or alcoholic parents or something like that, and you find those backgrounds, and then you kind of look for the common ingredients, and then you're going to try to do some behavior modification. There's all kinds of ideas on how people got the way they are, but there is no scientific fact behind any of it. The truth is no one knows how people get the way they are. You can say that people grow up in ghettos, turn into to, to drug dealers and crooks. That's a pretty big generalization. But the fact is, some of them decide they don't want to live that way, and they go on and become doctors and lawyers. It's amazing. You read those stories in the Reader's Digest and other places of the successes. Now, admittedly, they're not huge. But if the fact that one person can do it proves it can be done. Somehow it didn't get to that person. One of the most interesting studies is when you study what happens in families among siblings. How do some of them turn out so differently? I remember a number of years ago discovering a book that uh, was written by a pastor 
and his wife, who had five children. They had four children, and the youngest one was a teenager before they had their fifth. By the time the youngest one was a teenager before the fifth one, they wrote a book on parenting because the first four turned out great and they were on track. And they wrote a book on parenting and they began to export their wisdom on how to turn out perfect children. And then the fifth one came along. And, you know, this guy's admitting some years down the road, oh man, nothing I thought I knew worked. <laughs> Everything went wrong. Well, how did that happen? Same parents, same environment, same structure, different person. Children are different. They're not all the same. Identical twins are a fascinating study. You begin to look at identical twins. I love the study that was done a number of years ago, and David Weiss made me aware of this in terms of alcoholics, where they studied twins of alcoholic parents. And in the course of that, there were two twins. One of them was a skid row drunken bum, and the other one was an attorney who did not drink a drop. And they asked them, you know, how did you turn out like this? <laughs> and both of these now men gave the same answer. With parents like ours, how could we be any different? Hello? What's going on there? You know, and one of them was saying, I don't want anything to do with this lifestyle. And the other one was saying, I grew up in an alcoholic home and I was predetermined to be an alcoholic. But they were identical twins who came up in the same home with the same parents. Psychologists don't know how we get the way we are. They're pretty good at saying what we are, but they don't know how we got there. And here's the real kicker. They don't know the cure. They do not have any idea how to truly be healed. We can talk about psychotherapy, we can talk about medication, we can talk about uh, getting you know, in touch with the child of the past, we can take all kinds of strategies, we can learn behavior modification, we can do all kinds of things to, to put band-aids and patch kits on top of dysfunctional behavior. But I'm here to tell you, only Jesus can change who you are. Only He can get down into the heart of who you are and change you from the inside out to where you're really, really different. Only Jesus can do that. And, and there are many things I want you to take away from this short series that we're working on right now, but, but one of them that I really, really want to underscore is this. We can pray for one another. We can help each other. We can love each other unconditionally. That's one of the big ministries of the family of God, is unconditional love. And I'm not talking about enabling. I'm talking about accepting. The church family should be a community where you come, warts and all, and know that you are loved, no matter what. But it should also be a community that does not accept bad behavior. A community that says, you know what? You have Jesus. And we can walk this journey together and we can become like Him. You don't have to live this way. But a community that says, but I'm going to stick with you and I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to love you 
and I'm going to be there for you. And we can help each other out. But the only person in the universe that really knows why you do what you do, that really knows how you think, that really understands you from the inside out, and knows what to do to fix you, is Jesus Christ. There is no other one besides Him. He is it. And, good news for you, He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And I will never leave you, nor forsake you. People that really have a lot of problems can wear a lot of people out. But you will never wear Jesus out. You will never catch him tired. Years ago, to my horror, I fell asleep in the middle of a counseling session. I was not the counselee. I was doing the counseling. And I will never forget this woman saying to me, I can't believe it. I finally found someone that I could pour my heart out to and tell my deepest stories and you fall asleep in my face. That was a really big oops. I was really tired. Jesus never sleeps or slumbers. He will never let you down. He will never fall asleep in your counseling session. You have His undivided 24-7 attention. There's no one like Him. He is the wonderful counselor. And He is the answer. So, so I, really, I really want us to realize this morning that as we start getting into the, the nitty-gritty of dealing with my, my lies, my wrong beliefs, my perceptions of life that are inaccurate, my, my coping mechanisms, my defense strategies, all the garbage that makes up the ugly side of me, that there is one who understands and knows. And he gets in there with the intention of bringing Christ-like character and healing us. Look at letter B, because I want to explain something about this. As the Holy Spirit begins His work in us, to make us into the image of Christ, He brings us to places and experiences that expose the lies we have believed and confronts us with His truth. Perhaps you have memorized Romans 8.28 and following, but let me read it for you as a reminder. Romans 8, beginning in verse 26. And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, 
because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know, verse 28, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. When we come to Jesus Christ and we turn our lives over to him, he begins a work that he will not quit until the day he appears for us in glory. He that has begun a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. I'm quoting scripture to you. This is the truth. He begins a work. Now, another sad truth is many, many believers, as they come into this work of God, many believers kind of hit the first wall and they get a little dazed and they say, wow, that was very much fun. I don't look so good here. I don't like that feeling of not looking good. I think I'll back off a little bit. Then something else comes into their life and then they they get exposed again. Boom, they hit another wall. And now this time they're really kind of knocked for a loop. And many Christians, after a very short distance down the road of holiness, quit playing the game. It's not a game. I shouldn't say that really. They quit playing. They stop cooperating. They don't want any more exposure. They'd rather be left alone. Thank you very much. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I go to church. I like the music. People are kind of cool. I'm having a good time. Don't mess with who I am. Don't get down there and, and, and dig into my stuff. I, just leave me alone. And many Christians just stop right there. And they do not let God do the deep work. Because, because the deep work takes us somewhere. You know where it goes? It takes your ego and it nails it to a cross. So that his life can shine out of you without hindrance. And most people don't want to go down that path. They want to be saved. They like the presence of the Holy Spirit. They, they want to, to have good uh, friendships. They, they kind of like the singing, but they don't want transformation. But the work of God is to bring us to places in life where our weaknesses are exposed so they can be gotten out in the open. And we can see them with God. Everybody else doesn't necessarily have to see this stuff. Sometimes they do. (laughs) Sometimes failure is huge. But he brings us to places where our weaknesses are exposed. And in the process, he really is asking the question, this is you. Would you like it to be replaced with me? 
if you will let me, I will put that on the cross and I will come through. Will you let me? Now, I want to clarify something because a lot of people get hung up here. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world where bad things happen. We live in a world where heartaches occur. We live in a world where sadness is a part of life. Relationships fall apart. Jobs are lost. Financial security is disrupted. Health fails. That's the kind of world we live in. I am not telling you that God brings tragedy and problems and difficulties into your life as if He designed them so that He can put you in the crucible of testing. If I could explain this, I would be God. So I I can't explain this in depth. God is good. I know that by the Word. But, but God, in the master plan, sees all this stuff in advance, and He has it all figured out. And with the things that come into our lives that are grossly negative, He has already said in advance, I will use that to make you over into my image, if you will let me. I will bring good out of that for you. I will, I will use this situation to transform you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Or, you can run away licking your wounds and protecting your ego and, and huddling up close to yourself and gain no benefit. And when I say that, I, I don't want you to go out of here saying, Uh, The next tragedy that strikes me, God caused it so he could put the smack down on me. What I'm saying is, nothing ever takes God by surprise. And he knows what's coming down the road, and he will use it in your life for his glory and your good. That's what Romans 8.28 says. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Nothing in your life has to be lost. It can all be turned to your gain if you will yield it to Jesus Christ. And we see in the context that the goal is whom He foreknew He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. So has disappointment come into your life? You didn't get into that graduate school or that university you were hoping for? How do you handle disappointment? How large is your confidence in God? Did the stock market tank on your retirement income? And now you have nothing to retire on? I I remember back in 2000, somewhere along in there, where the big crash came because of some of the internet sites and whatever, and and the stock market tanked. 
And I remember one paramedic at the fire station with dismay saying, I was planning to retire next year and I just lost over 70% of my retirement in my stocks. And I'm going to have to work another 10 years now. And, and just, just frustrated and worried and anxious. How do you handle that? If you're a child of God, what, what does that say about you when you wring your hands in dismay and say, <clears throat> what, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Who's going to help me? How am I going to survive this? That's exposing something in you. Lack of faith, among other things. Be anxious for nothing. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. He will never leave you nor forsake you. My God will supply all of your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but put your treasures in heaven and seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and He will take care of you because your Father knows what you need. Okay, where, where is your hope? Where is your trust? If loss of financial security exposes lack of faith, run to Jesus. He is your security. You know, I'm amazed at people that have all their hopes and all their confidence in their savings. And, in, you know, one of these days, if Jesus tarries and we live long enough, some people say, well, I'm investing in gold because... Gold is, is a surefire security. Or I, I, Some people squirrel their cash away in their house. I can't believe. You know, I've been a pastor for a long time, and I hear the stories of families after the death of, you know, a, a senior uh, patriarch of the family that are digging wads of $1,000 at a time out of envelopes stuffed in vents and attics and backs of drawers. And it's like, man... Because of lacking security. And what are you going to do one day? You know, you say, well, I've got mine in gold. There will always be gold. Yeah, until the government says, you have until December 1st to cash in all your gold and take these government papers in place of it. And anyone who has gold after December 1st is just going to be shot. You don't think that will ever happen? It's already happened in the world. Governments come and go. They change. One day they're all going to change and not for the best. And all they have to do is make a rule. Look at the communist revolution in Russia. Look at Vietnam. Look at China. Look at the history. Look at the overthrow and overturns of government. There is no security on this planet outside of Jesus Christ. And if you encounter something that awakens you to that fact, it may simply be exposing your lack of confidence in the Lord. And does God say to Himself, let's see, I think I'm going to rip all, their, uh, all of their hope apart so that I can just devastate them and see who comes out on top. I want to be very careful with that because you read the book of Job, it sounds an awful lot like that, except the devil was the one bargaining for the opportunity. But, but the truth is that nothing 
happens in your life that God cannot use. And oftentimes those difficult spots of life expose the lies that you have believed. And as those lies become exposed, the Holy Spirit is free to work. And if you will submit to Him, you can die to self and come alive in Jesus Christ. I can't go on any further this morning because I'm out of time. I'm going to pick up there next week. Um, I'm going to, I've been promising you this for three weeks. I'm really going to do it. I'm going to share my own story with depression. And the last major, major, major battle that I fought a number of years ago. And some of the things that God taught me in the process of that. Because I I want you to know this morning that no matter what your problem is in the realm of behavior or emotions or anxiety or mental stress or whatever, no matter what it is, Jesus is your healer. There is hope. I I don't want you to go away from here uh, feeling harshness, but feeling the love of God. I'm sharing these things with you because Jesus Christ loves you. And He has died to save you. And saving means not just missing hell. It means saving you from yourself. It means taking over And living through you a life that is precious and valuable and pleasing and mature and godly and Christ-honoring and full of the immense reward of hearing Him say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. And you can hear that every day of your life. If you have just yielded today to what the Holy Spirit wanted to do, You can go to bed at night and in your mind's ear you can hear the word of the Lord. You did well today, my son. You did well today, my daughter. You yielded to me. And we're making progress. And I love you. Now, he loves you anyway. But it's so much more fun when you know that he has had his way And you are at peace with God. Father, I pray that you would uh, create in us a longing and desire to let you do the deep surgery of the soul. We, We have this old nature in us that needs to go to the cross. And we give you permission I I can't speak for the others here. I give you permission. I want to be like Jesus. I want my life to reflect His character. I want to know You, Lord Jesus. I want to be found in You, not having my own silly, shallow righteousness. I want to be found in You, having the righteousness which comes by faith. I want to know the fellowship of your sufferings. Lord, I want to know the power of your resurrection. I want to be conformed to the image of your death. I want to know you.
And I pray that that hunger and passion would be the desire of everyone here. In Jesus' name, amen.